Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we have an opening on the U.S. Supreme Court, which ought to be a political reality test for our Democratic friends who have to understand that you cannot count to 50 votes or 51 votes without Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. And I understand that it's been deeply satisfying over the last several weeks to beat the living bejabbers out of both of them. You have the Democrats in Arizona who are censuring cinema. And apparently the whole show vote last week, uh, Chuck Schumer's brilliant tactic to force uh, a vote that he knew uh, that he was going to lose uh, was designed to put pressure on or shame these two mavericks. And of course, that failed spectacularly. But a quick reminder, as I pointed out in my newsletter, Rule number one, when you have a razor thin majority is don't burn the boats. Do not torch the bridges. <laughs> you may need them. And today's the day you're going to need them. I'm assuming, by the way, that Manchin and Cinema are going to vote in favor of uh, whatever nominee Joe Biden puts up. And I, I say that because they voted for all of the other judges, uh, the lower court judges. But just one more point here. Keep in mind that as Tim Miller has said so eloquently, if you didn't have Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you would have Senator Cletus von Ivermectin, Republican of West Virginia. And in that particular case, Mitch McConnell would be controlling the Senate. And it wouldn't matter how a Kirsten Sinema voted because there wouldn't be a vote. He would block all consideration. There would not even be a hearing, most likely. Uh, and, you know, if you doubt me about that, just... Uh, Check with Merrick Garland. Okay, we have a lot to talk about today. Our guest today is Matt Bennett, who's a Democratic strategist who's worked on uh, both of uh, Bill Clinton's presidential campaigns, but more importantly, he is the founder of Third Way, which is a centrist think tank. Matt, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is the Third Way? Is there a Third Way? Because I'm kind of desperately looking for a Third Way. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to find the <laughs> recent politics. Uh, we are, uh, we've been around 15 years. We're a, a multi-issue think tank and we are on the center left. We're moderate Democrats. Uh, we named ourselves that because that was Bill Clinton's governing philosophy that he borrowed from Tony Blair. So it's kind of the distant memory that where that comes from, but we are now owning it. You know, I, I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading a story about all of the retirements and uh, the gerrymandering that's going on. One of the real bottom lines to all of this is the the ranks of moderates in both parties is just being decimated in the House of Representatives. I mean, it used to be that we would have a, a certain centrist, center-right, center-left uh, group of legislators who might be able to talk to one another. And even though I think we're, we're desperately in, in need of a centrist way, um, this is not a centrist moment. It doesn't feel like it, does it? Well, it's certainly kind of the macro, it doesn't, because one party has gone completely crazy and, um, and is hunting its moderates down yes. like buffalo on the prairie, and they're hunting them into <laughs> extinction. Uh, but, but I will say for Democrats, the House New Democrats have uh, 90, I think 94 members, uh, that's kind of a lot out of a, a caucus that's 220 some. So uh, there are quite a few people in the House um, and I would say around 20 or so in the Senate who you could uh, fairly call moderates. The problem for them has been it's very difficult to find counterparts on the other side when two thirds of House Republicans voted not to accept the yeah. results of the election. So 
Well, okay. Well, this brings us to uh, what I really wanted to talk to you about. A third way announced his campaign yesterday, urging Democrats to respond to the January 6th insurrection with the size, scope, and seriousness of a presidential campaign. Uh, good write-up in Axios about this. Uh, you said you told Axios for the first time in U.S. history, a party must mount two parallel presidential campaigns, one to win the election, the other to prevent its theft. And you're calling this a Paul Revere moment. So tell me about what the, the campaign is you're launching and what makes it distinctive. Well, I think if you are a loyal reader of the bulwark, as I am, uh, you're already super alarmed about the attempt by Republicans and the core of the Republican Party to establish all of the facts on the ground that they will need uh, to steal the 2024 presidential election if they lose it. And uh, the problem is that the, the bulk of the Democratic establishment isn't alarmed enough yet. They might yeah. have read stuff in the Bulwark or Bart Gelman's yeah. piece in The Atlantic, but they just don't know how serious the threat is, how multifaceted it is, how it's happening in the states and at the federal level, how well financed and serious and strategic it is. I think they still think about you know, uh, Four Seasons landscaping and, and Rudy Giuliani running around with this kind of clown car full of lawyers. And it isn't that anymore. It is now. So they still think it's a joke rather exactly. than a serious conspiracy, a serious reality. Right. And and what we needed in 2020 to respond to the joke was uh, Mark Elias and his lawyers who easily batted away the legal challenges that Giuliani uh, posited. And, and then, you know, uh, thankfully, Congress was in the control of Democrats when when the riot occurred. And even though two thirds of House Republicans and a bunch of Senate Republicans voted one way that they didn't have enough votes to to get in the way. The yeah. problem is that's it is not at all clear that people like Brad Raffensperger, a Republican who was a Trump supporter, but did the right thing at the state level or people in Congress will do that again in 24. Okay, so I, I urge people to go and read the document that you put up on your website uh, because, you know, you write that the danger to democracy is obviously coming from the Republican Party. And again, this is going to sound familiar to people, but your intention is obviously to, as, a, as a wake up call to the Democratic establishment. So let's just walk through this that there are five distinct parts to this theft plot. Let's walk through them. First one voter suppression. Right. This is one that has been around uh, since the republic was founded. Uh, it is the attempt on the part of one party to keep uh, partisans of the other party from voting. And often that is racial. You're seeing that in very clear relief in a whole bunch of states. Georgia is probably the best example. And that's very, very bad. And that is what the bills in Congress that were filibustered last week and what Joe Biden went to Georgia to talk about, that's what they were intended to stop, which is this attempt to get people not to vote. Uh, super bad, often racist, but also very familiar. That's only part one. That's part one. Part two, and this I think is much more serious, the big live vote counters. Right. So when you get to part two, it's this is all new. This is not about vote suppression. This is about vote theft, which is to say taking the votes that are actually cast and either not counting them or counting them wrong. And what we're seeing all over the country at the state level with secretaries of state and, and at the county level with the, the kind of uh, boards that count the votes. And then at the precinct level with the people who actually check you in when you go to vote and Jeez. end up 
you know, counting machines at the end, uh, you're seeing a flood of people coming in who believe the big lie and are going to be in position to hold those jobs in 2024. You know, and the interesting thing about it is they're telling us what they're doing. I mean, this is this is not being done stealthily. It's being done in real time, in broad daylight. Steve Bannon, who has millions of viewers on his, it may seem obscure, not on our radar screen, but he's got millions of people listening to him, and he's urging his listeners and viewers to actually take over the actual process of voting and counting. And it, the evidence suggests that they are that they're in fact doing that. I. You know, you, you point out that ProPublica found that in 65 counties, 8,500 new Republican officers have signed up to work the polls. And the people who upheld the 2020 results, these are the ones who are being purged. So this is this is ongoing. Exactly. And those 8,500 people were driven to do this by people like Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA. These are the core big lie Republicans who are driving this change. So these are not just 8,500 good citizens who want to go out and see clean elections. These are people that believe in their souls that the election of 2020 was stolen and that there were, God knows, you know, bamboo in the ballots or uh, yeah, yeah. NATO was doing, you know, they're, they're, they're conspiracy theorists and they are going to be actually counting the votes at the precinct level. And then even worse you will have people like Jody Heiss, who is a super far-right Republican mm -hmm. congressman running for Secretary of State of Georgia. Imagine if Jody Heiss, a big lie guy, had been on the other end of the phone call from, from Trump when he was asked to find 11,000 new votes. Raffensperger stood up to Trump. There is no chance that Jody Heiss would have done that. No, none. So you also point out number three, that that if, they, if the Republicans can't successfully rig the vote, the third option are these these ongoing threats against election officials you, you, with partisan poll watchers? And there's very clearly an attempt to create an atmosphere of intimidation for the people who are actually running the elections. Talk about that. Well, you know, uh, for I think it was 30 years, the, the Republican Party was under a court order not to send people to the polls. Now, these are not the precinct workers that we just talked about. These are the people that stand outside with sample ballots and that kind of thing. They, were, they couldn't send people to polls in many states because of a consent decree with the Justice Department because what they had been doing before was voter intimidation. Hmm. That expired in 2018. And uh, what the RNC did immediately was recruit militia members and former or current police officers and, and, and military folks, uh, intimidating people to go and uh, stand outside or in some cases inside the polling places to keep an eye on things. What they really are there to do is intimidate the poll workers themselves and the voters. And uh, so you're seeing quite a bit of that. And that's one kind of intimidation. Others are, uh, there's a sh sheriff in Wisconsin who wants to uh, arrest the people who served on the statewide yeah. uh, 2020 committees to, you know, because they gave instructions to how to manage an election during COVID. And then you've got obviously the violence, the real violence and, and threats of violence that you're seeing uh, not only uh, directed against the Capitol, of course, and against people like the governor of Michigan, but against people at the precinct level who are running the polls. They are getting threats. Uh, their children are being followed. And so all of this kind of intimidation is happening at every level. 
Okay, so this feels like we're escalating, like walking up the ladder here, because your fourth point here, the GOP legislators who are taking over the power to run elections in at least 14 states, legislators have already enacted new laws to take the power of elections from career officials. I mean, uh, if, we've, if, we've, if we've learned anything, it's how quickly the unthinkable becomes the thinkable and, and how quickly uh, Republican office holders fall into line. I mean, this is a, you think this is a real threat? No question about it. Um, unfortunately, at least at the moment, the Constitution gives a lot of power to state legislatures to set not only the time, place, and manner of federal elections, but also to determine how the electors, that is the people who vote in the Electoral College, are picked. It, it is theoretically possible, it is actually possible, that a state legislature could simply say, we're not going to have an election for president, we are going to choose the electors. Now, no state's going to do that, that would be insane. But um, it is very possible that a state legislature controlled by big lie Republicans could take a look at an election that happens that uh, ends up you know, voting to reelect Biden, for example, and determine that the election has failed. And there's a legal precedent for that. And then they would send their own slate of electors to Congress, uh, either in place of the Biden electors, if they have the governor's cooperation, or in addition to the Biden electors, if the governor is democratic. Keep in mind, of course, in the 10 swing states in presidential politics, the 10 that have been determining the outcome of the election, at least in the last four years, uh, Republicans control both houses of the state legislature in all 10. Okay. You, you described that scenario as insane, but I want to go back to the other point you made, and this is where you take a deep breath. In fact, if the legislatures in those states decided that they were going to name the electors and they were not going to have a popular vote for president, that would be, of course, very controversial. Um, it would be very toxic and divisive, but it would be constitutional, wouldn't it? Because the yeah. Constitution actually does give them the power, in theory, to do exactly that. It does. I mean, obviously, this harkens People don't back know to that. Right. Yeah. It's it's pretty crazy. But it's, you know, back to the days where senators were picked by the state legislatures. I mean, in the early days, only white male landowners could vote. Um, and so the Constitution was written in a way that is unimaginable to us uh, now. But uh, and and no president has been chosen that way since uh, early in the 19th century. But it is theoretically and constitutionally possible. And I think the, so that's one thing of them just deciding they're going to pick the president. But I think the bigger threat is if they look at the election that has happened in their state, as many of the big lie Republicans have done in Pennsylvania and Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and say, well, the people running the elections out uh, they, they took steps that they did not have our authority to take. We set the time, place, and manner of the election, and they allowed a polling place to stay open two extra hours because the line was very long. Therefore, the election has failed, and therefore, we're going to use the electors. That is possible. And by the way, four Supreme Court justices have weighed in and said that would be legitimate. That's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine that they have the power to do that. And Amy Comey Barrett has not yet ruled on this. So there could be a majority on the Supreme Court that would approve that kind of move. Okay, so lastly, the last point in your document, the big lie Republicans can try to do what they could not do on January 6th, simply declare the losing GOP candidate the winner. 
using congressional votes to choose which slate of electors they want to recognize. Now, in 2025, January 2025, you won't have Mike Pence sitting up there. It will be Kamala Harris. I mean, obviously, that gives the Democrats some sort of an, an edge. But the problem is a, major, a Republican Senate and Republican House does have the ability to overturn this election. Correct. They do. And the pro- yeah, one of the problems is that Mike Pence was right about this. Yeah. The role of the vice president is ceremonial. The vice president just sits up there and gavels things to order, essentially, and, and makes the announcement. And my old boss, poor Al Gore, had to announce his own loss after you know the bitter fight uh, in 2000. Uh, that's the role of the vice president. But the, the members of the House and Senate have enormous power, and they could choose uh, either if there are, let's say, two different sets of electors that arrive from a state like Wisconsin, they could choose the one they like more. Uh, or they could choose to throw out the slate of electors from one or more states if they believe that the election was failed in those states. And then there are all kinds of ways where that could end up with the Republican winning and becoming president. Okay. So the question that I get asked all the time is, okay, what can we do about all of this? And, and your point here is you don't think folks give into despair or indifference. You have to stop this coup by running a parallel campaign to stop the coup plotters that goes beyond the presidential campaign. What does that parallel campaign look like? Well, I think it's important to emphasize that let's presume that that President Biden's going to run for re-election with with Vice President Harris on the ticket. The Biden-Harris team has one job politically, and that's to get re-elected. And it is not their job to stop this theft of the presidential election. It is the job of uh, the all of the small D Democrats in America, which is me as a big D Democrat and you as a former uh, Republican and everybody who, who cares about democracy needs to get behind a massive undertaking to stop all of these various things. However, it's not a campaign to win votes. I think it's very clear from all of the polling I've seen, we're not going to get voters Uh, to care about this in the ways that we want them to. Unfortunately, at the moment, the people who really care about democracy are Republicans who think that the 2020 election was stolen. We're not going to turn that around. But what we do need to do is kind of in in all the areas we just discussed, uh, have countervailing measures. So, for example, we need a lot of money flowing to people uh, who are running for secretary of state against the big lie people. We need a lot of volunteers moving into the precincts to to run the elections in place of these big liars. And uh, we need a lot of focus on legal and litigation efforts. And there's a whole bunch of other things. But it is not a campaign in the traditional sense where you're trying to win votes. It's a campaign to stop this this array of, of horrors. But you acknowledge you're starting from way behind here. Correct. No question. They are way ahead of us. And I think uh, the reason that we put this out was uh, our view was if it were enough that that people in the bulwark were pointing this out and Bart Gelman was writing in The Atlantic, we would be doing a lot more. But but unfortunately, that hasn't been enough of a galvanizing force. And we're trying to ring the alarm and get people to act. You know, it's funny. I had a conversation with somebody right before we we did the podcast on this question of, is there a grassroots movement to fight the big lie, to do anything about it? And I said, I'm I'm not sure at this point. And the 
the opposition to the big lie appears to be very, very scattered. But it does occur to me, and I don't think you disagree with me, is, look, it, you know, how do you counter the, the you know, 80 percent of Republicans who believe that the election was stolen? You primarily are going to need other Republicans who are going to stand up against this. You know, you mentioned Brad Raffensperger. If it wasn't for Brad Raffensperger in Georgia or, or, or Gabe Sterling or even the governor there or Republicans in Maricopa County in Arizona, this story is completely different. So it is crucial that you have trusted Republican voices push back against this, because quite frankly, you're not going to turn this around by editorials on NPR or in the New York Times. Agree? 100% agree. And, And Democrats like me have got to get our heads around the fact that we must support people like Brad Raffensperger. Look, the odds of a Democrat winning the secretary yes. of state race in Georgia are zero. very remote. Yeah, zero is probably about right. And so the the choice is not between a Democrat and a Republican. It's between a big lie like Jody Heiss and a, and a responsible Republican like Brad Raffensperger. And we definitely need to, to support Democratic supporting Republicans wherever they're running in, in positions to control elections in red states. So could, could you talk to your friend Mark Elias about this then? Because, um, you know, every every time he, he spends a great deal of his time, obviously litigating against uh, what Republicans are doing, but, but also an inordinate amount of time hammering people like Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger because they're still conservative Republicans. And I, I got to admit, I'm really frustrated about it, that if you are going to turn this around, you're going to have to make common cause with people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And it's not clear to me that everybody has gotten that memo. I think that's right. And and just to be clear on Mark, we owe him a huge debt of gratitude for the work that he did in 2020 to save the election and and the work he's doing now. He's a brilliant lawyer and we couldn't have anybody better running that piece of it. I happen to think that he's wrong about making common cause with people like Cheney because the stakes are so high. We could lose our democracy. That is a very, very real possibility. And when the stakes are that high, you make common cause with people that you disagree with. I mean, the, the obvious example is World War II. We were not uh, we're not making common cause with Stalin because he was great. It was because Hitler was worse. And <sighs> and and I'm not saying that any of these analogies like it's always dangerous World War II analogies, but you get the point. Is you got the enemy of my enemy can sometimes be my friend, and and we must. We must get our heads around that as a party. I also, by the way, think that Mark is wrong about something else that's very important, which is his view is Democrats should not be uh, working with Republicans to amend the Electoral Count Act at the moment. Right. And that he's he's just wrong. That is a thing we should do. No, I mean, that's one of those moments where you go, do you really believe that nothing is better than something? Because uh, I I long thought, I thought the Electoral Count Act was crucial because it directly dealt with the threat posed by January 6th in a way that some of these other bills didn't. So let's just step back from all of this because I want, I want to talk to you as, as head of a centrist think tank. Earlier this week, I talked with Rui Teixeira about his critique of what the Democrats need to do, the problems that they face in the midterms. Give me your sense of where the Democratic Party is and whether they fully understand the disconnect that exists right now between them or their public image and the voters who are going to be determining control of Congress. 
I do not think that most Democrats understand that disconnect at all. I think some do and are very alarmed about it. I think Rui certainly does, but I think most Democrats don't. It is hard when you're in the majority, no matter how narrow, and when you've got the presidency, to believe that you've got an enormous political problem. Uh, There's a tendency to believe that you have some kind of mandate. And I just don't think that we do. And the very odd result that we saw in 2020 was that we won the presidency, not easily, but by modern standards, comfortably. Uh, But we also lost 14 House seats and we lost all of the close or the contested Senate races and they weren't close. We got blown out. And I think people need to recognize that that was a huge warning sign and things are worse now. And uh, there is a giant problem in Democrats recognizing that. Part of it, of course, is because we have a gigantically broad coalition. Our coalition spans from Joe Manchin on one side to, you know, Cory Bush and the squad on the other. And that's a pretty long way. Meanwhile, the Republicans have a coalition that that runs from Ted Cruz to Josh Hawley. And that's a pretty small gap. I I think a a lot of people have uh, done analyses after 2020, found that the defund the police uh, was really toxic. How badly did that hurt Democrats in 2020? Enormously. Uh, Third Way actually was one of the lead sponsors of a retrospective uh, on 2020. And that just leaped off the page. Uh, Defund the police was a disaster for Democrats in 2020, a catastrophe. Uh, It could have been actually worse. We won a few close races that were only close because uh, defund was uh, an issue. And what happens often to Democrats is they're attacked by things that seem to them to be preposterous and, and therefore they don't respond to them. That's what happened in a lot of races in 2020 where they were attacked as wanting to defund the police and the member under attack didn't. Uh, the problem is that it's very easy to associate you know, the most at-risk moderates in swing districts with the ideas and the rhetoric of the very vocal far left. And Republicans did that extraordinarily effectively in 2020. So you know, Anthony Brindisi was a first-term member from upstate New York, mm-hmm. where I'm from, And he was accused of wanting to fund the police. Complete lie. He did not want to fund the police, but it was credible because others in the Democratic conference did, and it killed them, and it killed a dozen House freshmen in 2020. A dozen. A dozen. I think the key point here is the way all politics now is national. It used to be, you know, all politics was local, but so that, that, that an extreme position held by, you know, a Republican or a Democrat anywhere in the country can affect, can have that butterfly effect everywhere else in the country. So I see, I see that two months ago you tweeted that the idea of non-citizen voting rights was, uh, was perhaps not brilliant. Uh, and, and, and you might remember this, you got flamed by red rose Twitter for that point out that, that this might not be a winning issue. And you know, it's, it's funny because I get all kinds of blowback from people say, well, actually, Charlie, you need to understand, you know, they do this in, they do this in Denmark or here's the argument. And my argument is look, have your argument, you know, in, in, in your seminar room, I'm just telling you how this plays out in the rest of the country where in Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin, that the Democrats are giving voting rights to non-citizens. I, it, it's, 
it strikes me as self-evidently toxic, but look, you deal with Democrats. They don't all, all recognize that, do they? They don't. I mean, it's some of the things that the far left does, it's as if the the folks at the RNC were sitting around and whiteboarding, you know, what is the best possible thing that they could do for us? And I think defund the police was right up there. Letting non-citizens vote is up there. I mean, we've got Congresswoman Tlaib saying that we should shut down all federal prisons and, and decriminalize. I mean, y- you cannot make this stuff up. And we are handing issues to Republicans uh, just to whack our moderates with. It isn't going to hurt Rashida Tlaib. It isn't going to hurt the uh, the people in these navy blue districts who are talking about this. And, you know, if pressed, they would say, yes, of course, the politics of Queens are different than the politics of Racine or, or Green Bay. Uh, but what they f- seem to fail to appreciate is how much damage they are doing to their colleagues elsewhere. So I I share your concern about the the threat to democracy, and I think you know whether or not it, it moves votes or not, it, the Democrats have to treat it as an existential threat. But having said that, uh, if you turn on MSNBC, you don't get a sense that defund the police, chaos at the border, smash and grab crime are going to be big issues, and they are right. I mean, I mean, I, you, you spend any time on conservative media, you read any of the Republican fundraising letters, you see how they are weaponizing these issues. Again, crime, law and order, the chaos at the border, defunding police. And and my, my sense is there are still some Democrats who are in deep denial about that. And their media ecosystem is not you know, rattling the cage saying, hey, this is what's playing out in the world. You want to know why these numbers are down? Because people are not sitting around, you know, d- debating whether or not we should use Latin X. Um, they're, they're concerned about uh, safety in their neighborhoods. You know, and, and then and they don't trust you right now. They don't. Uh, you're exactly right. If I could wave a magic wand, I would remove Twitter from the phones of everyone in democratic politics. Uh, because uh, I think in addition to cable, Twitter is an incredibly distorting lens through which too many in politics are viewing the world. And uh, the problem is that those things you just mentioned are either um, seen as irrelevant or sideshow issues or actually good uh, by, by folks on liberal Twitter. And uh, they simply don't represent the electorate in any way. They don't even represent the Democratic electorate, right. um, and much less the general electorate. And the we've seen this over and over. It completely distorts the way people in politics and people in the political media view the world. The reason that everyone thought, other than us, thought that Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee of the party is because they the first thing they do in the morning is they look at Twitter. The last thing they do at night is look at Twitter. And they just saw the world through a funhouse mirror. So you, uh, at Third Way, have suggested that one thing that uh, the Democrats should do is to be more like Ronald Reagan on the economy. <laughs> Imagine that's raised, raised some eyebrows. What do you mean when you say be more like Reagan on the economy? Look, Reagan had uh, a, an economy that was roaring forward, but had some inflation. You know, the, I think inflation was something like 4.5 or 4.8 percent under Reagan. Now, that's lower than what we're seeing now for sure, but uh, it's not completely out of the ballpark. And what Reagan did was talked about how great the economy was. Democrats are preternaturally 
incapable of saying then when we're in charge of things that the economy is good. We're always terrified of, you know, spiking the football or whatever metaphor is used. And we should be pointing out that last year saw the greatest drop in unemployment in American history. Uh, we saw a roaring stock market. We saw a huge drop in consumer debt. All of the arrows of the economy are pointing straight up, except the problem area is, of course, inflation. We definitely can't deny that or downplay it. But Reagan would have said the economy is booming. It's mourning in America. That's what he did say. And he won 49 states in one of the greatest landslides in history. Is there some reason why Democrats find it hard to be rah-rah about the economy? Is there something structural, something in what? Why is it so hard for them? Well, uh, yes, because I think uh, a lot of our activists in the Democratic Party keep pointing out that there's a lot of suffering going on out there economically. And that, of course, is true. And uh, the suffering is happening with the very poor. It is happening with the working class and it's happening to some extent with the middle class. Um, if you, you know, if you can't send your kid to preschool or you can't find a car to buy, um, it is true that there is economic damage out there and people are still reeling from the from the recession uh, from covid and there's all kinds of issues that they're struggling with however uh, politics does requires that that you frame your message in ways that are uplifting and appealing and that you make clear where you have done good and i think biden's done a lot of good uh, the economy is doing pretty well and we need to say that Okay, so you you made an appearance recently on PBS where you talked about what they've already accomplished. And I think this is one of the extraordinary things from the outside is that by objective standards, Biden and the Democrats have passed some pretty big pieces of legislation that spent a lot of money, right? And yet right now they're all down like they feel like they have failed. But, you know, the rescue plan and the infrastructure bill combined $3.1 trillion. I'm sorry. That's just a shitload of money, isn't it? That is a ton of money. I mean, that I think in real dollar terms is about the size of the New Deal. Uh, yeah. That's a lot of money. And and it's going to bring real change that our people have already felt with the rescue plan and are going to feel with the infrastructure bill. And for the love of God, we need to talk about that and talk about how we made it happen. I mean, Trump would have liked to have a big infrastructure bill, his pathetic attempt to get Republicans to vote against it, notwithstanding, because he wanted to be the one to sign it because it's a big deal. And we did it and we should make sure people know it. So, again, what what should Biden do if he called you up and said, OK, um, obviously, Bill Clinton had some really rocky times in his first uh, term. How do I reset this presidency? Actually, so did Barack Obama. Barack Obama's first year was uh, was actually the first two years were extremely rocky, and yet they managed to turn things around. W- what would you tell him to do? How would he prioritize? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say to your point, I would say take heart. It is by no means clear that where you are now is where you're going to be three years from now. And, you know, that both of those presidents turned things around and won re-election. And by the way, George H.W. Bush was at like 91% in the polls at this point in his, in his uh, presidency and lost. Things change. Yeah. Things can change. And, and so what I would say to him most fundamentally is go back to the Joe Biden of 2020. 
to the guy that, that won the election by reaching out to the middle class and making clear to them that you understand precisely how they live their lives. I mean, one of the things that was most effective for Biden, and it's the reason that um, he won both the nomination and the, and the election, is that people could see that he could identify with the things that they were going through because he had been through them himself. It was genuine. Mm-hmm. And he needs to go back to that, to being a mainstream Democrat. Look, his first year was all about legislating. That's always true for new presidents. New uh, Democrats uh, coming into their first term as president have controlled both houses of Congress since Grover Cleveland. <clears throat> and they always swing for the fences, mm. but sometimes they fall short. And now it's time to, to pivot and talk about the things he's done. And obviously, also, there are just events over which he doesn't, he has limited control. I won't say he has no control. His handling of Ukraine is going to be a major test, especially given um, the the foobar of, of Afghanistan. Does that, does that change the dynamic fundamentally? Or has foreign policy become less salient than it used to be? Yeah, I think it's probably more the latter. Tucker Carlson, as you've pointed out, has created a, a real split inside the Republican Party about what we should do about things like Ukraine. There's this unbelievable isolationist strain in Republican politics uh, that is brand new, um, in addition to kind of a sucking up to Putin and Russia. So I think contrasting with that, the kind of Trumpian approach to Russia could be uh, somewhat valuable to Biden. And I think if he looks tough and stares Putin down, then that could redound to his benefit. But I think for the most part, Americans are not paying a ton of attention to Ukraine. If things go badly there, that could be a problem. If they go well, it could be a, a marginal benefit. So I have another question as, as somebody who's watched politics for a long time. When does conventional wisdom or positions by voters settle into place? Okay, the reason I'm asking this is, you know, people are saying, you know, by the middle of the year, if the pandemic is has gone away, if the economy is continuing to grow, if inflation has flagged, you know, things will turn around for, for Democrats and for Joe Biden. But is that too late? Do attitudes congeal earlier than that. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, I remember there used to be that old adage that people didn't actually pay attention to politics until after the World Series, which is clearly not true anymore. But at what point does someone's image become fixed? And to what extent is it still movable? What do you think? Well, I think there's probably two milestones to keep your eye on. One is people's attitudes about the economy, which is the almost always the driving force in their electoral choices. Uh, harden around June. There's a lot of political science that shows this. Yeah. So mid to late June is when they're going to make assessments about the economy, their own personal economic circumstance and the broader economy that will drive their vote in the fall. But then there's another point in which they'll make a choice between two candidates running for Congress or Senate, and that doesn't come until after Labor Day. So I think there are, those are the two points, but it isn't yet. I think this idea that the fact that Biden is doing poorly in the polls right now is definitely going to drive November, I think is wrong. Well, it's also interesting that he's he's obviously at a real low spot right now. But you saw the the uh, Politico Morning Consult poll that uh, showed that that he would lose rather badly to a generic Republican. But when you actually put a real Republican up against him, uh, he's quite competitive. So there's again the this uh, little bit of dissonance because generic candidates do not run. And when you put Donald Trump's name 
on the ballot. It's a very different picture of Ted Cruz, um, Ron DeSantis. So again, there is that difference between whether or not people see this as an up or down on on uh, Joe Biden or whether they see it as the choice between Joe Biden and what the Republicans are going to offer. And that dynamic is going to continue through 2024. Exactly. I mean, the, the classic thing is this a referendum or a choice. And the reason that a choice is so much more attractive to uh, the party in power is that for the most part, politics is is driven now by negative partisanship. People go out and vote against the people they hate, unfortunately. Um, and that's not entirely true, but that that is a big driver of politics. And so um, without Trump on the ballot, uh, what we saw in 2021 in Virginia was Yunkin, uh, the, the governor now who, who was running against a, a moderate uh, Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, was able to kind of walk this fine line and not get tagged as Trumpian. Um, and so the negative partisanship wasn't triggered and he did pretty well. That's going to be tougher to do for Republicans uh, running for federal office because those are much more nationalized races and the national party is so in the thrall of Trump. So the document we were talking about earlier, the plot to steal the presidency, it was published yesterday. You can find this on your website, uh, thirdway.org. It's important that people access it, print it out, share it, spread it around for people who ask the question. So really, how alarmed should we be? And the answer is pretty alarming because it is ongoing. Matt Bennett, thank you so much for spending time with us on the podcast today. No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.